Hello, this is Gideon Culver, and you are listening to a podcast on Proto-Indo-European religion, the religion of the ancestral Indo-Europeans. Who were the Indo-Europeans? You ask, or maybe you don't, maybe you already know. Hopefully you do. I do. Kind of. The Indo-Europeans are anyone who speaks, well, as it sounds, an Indo-European language. Indo-European language. So these are all languages, except for Basque and Finno-Ugric languages in Europe. Um, Persian languages came from this. Um, I mean, obviously the Indian languages, most, maybe not most, besides the Dravidian languages, because there's a whole history in there that I know not too much about. Um, so, point being, the Indo-Europeans are everywhere, because the Indo-European languages are one of the largest linguistic families on Earth, spoken on all seven continents. Yes, that's right, because there are people that hang out in Antarctica, therefore, languages spoken in Antarctica, and generally, it's Indo-European. Weird, right? English, Russian, German, French... All Indo-European languages. So, all of these languages that are spoken all over the world came from Proto-Indo-European. We don't really know what they called their language. We don't know what they called themselves. Possibly something to do with Aryan. Um, but that word's kind of taboo in the West. So, take that with a grain of salt. But anyway, point being, so the Proto-Indo-Europeans, um, they lived in, according to the Kurgan hypothesis, they lived in the Caspian steppes, so in like modern day Ukraine, and this is a continuation of the vast Central Asian steppe, okay. Uh, you might know the steppes from, like, Mongolia, Kazakhstan. Maybe you don't. Maybe you never heard the word steppe. But it's a word, and it means generally a vast, flat, and generally grassy area. Um, so, like I said, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Ukraine. It goes into Hungary, and probably several other countries that you're welcome to look up, but I don't remember right now. So, anyway, the Proto-Indo-Europeans lived above the Caspian Sea, in the Caspian Steppe. And they were a nomadic culture. We know this because, I mean, we found pottery and stuff from the Yamnaya culture. And uh, little bits of bronze and stoneworking and all that. But we don't find permanent structures. Okay, so we assume that they're a nomadic culture. Or they were a nomadic culture. Okay. And so, and there's kind of a continuum of nomadic cultures across the steppe. And it survives to this day in Mongolia and Kazakhstan, which is freaking amazing. I don't know if you think so, but I think it's pretty cool that for at least 6,000 years, there's been a cultural continuum of people living generally in the same way. So, Proto-Indo-Europeans... That's where they lived, right? In this vast, grassy area. Our ancestors lived there. And that's important. Because in our discussion 
of Indo-European religion, we have to understand where they were physically because religion is a way to interpret and interact with the physical and cultural landscape. Okay, pretty important that we understand what the physical and cultural landscape was. So they were assumably a patrilineal culture uh, since most Indo-European cultures that came from them were patrilineal. Um, They were nomadic, as I said, because of archaeological evidence. They also were possibly some of the first people to domesticate the horse and to ride the horse. Also important. Um, That is reflected in the religion, and I'll get to that in a moment. And, yeah, and they lived in this vast, grassy, generally flat area, right? And that's important, because I'll get to that. So, the reconstructed reconstructed Proto-European religion has been kind of grasped that and theorized based on what we know about its descendants. So, that would be, like, I guess the longest... Continuing polytheistic or generally polytheistic branch of Indo-European religion would be Hinduism obviously still practiced today by a whole lot of people and like I said generally polytheistic I'm sure you could debate me for hours on whether or not Hindus are or are not polytheistic but I don't really know enough about the subject to talk about it so generally polytheistic uh, Zoroastrianism in Persia, or what's left of Persia, um, that would be a assumably direct descendant from Indo-European religion, uh, but not necessarily uh, as far as what it teaches, but as far as where it came from, the the gods and maybe some of the values, but we don't really know about that for sure. Um, but they've construct, reconstructed it from Hinduism, Zoroastrianism, uh, the various Indo- er, various European pantheons, like, you know, the Roman pantheon, Greek pantheon, the Germanic pantheons, and um, the Lithuanians, or Baltic, I guess that would be Baltic, Balto-Slavic pantheons, which are the, the longest-lasting in Europe. Right, the last Lithuanian pagans were stomped out. Um, on record, maybe they lasted longer, but it's recorded that they were stomped out in the 1400s, I believe, 14th century, so that would be the 1300s, uh, by the Teutonic Order. So, anyway, but there's pretty good documentation of all these religions, so by comparing and contrasting, uh, anthropologists were able, and linguists were able to don't want to leave the linguists out, we're able to reconstruct Proto-Indo-European religion as close as possible, right? I mean, we're talking about the people that lived 6,000 years ago and didn't write anything down. So all of this is theoretical. Um, so what do we know about it? There was a supreme being, a supreme god, Deus Pater, okay? And he was the god of the daylight skies. Uh, Deus would be sky, and it's where, I mean, we have the word day that comes from it. 
deity uh, also comes from it. Um, obviously, deity, that's pretty easy to figure out. In Spanish, Dios, literally God. Uh, and in generally, generally, the Romance languages, um, the word Dios or Dios in Latin comes from, which means God, comes from the old Indo-European word de, Deus, because Deus Pater was the, literally means sky father. Okay, so he's the supreme God. Um, God of the Alex guys. He has a wife, or a consort, or a chick he hangs out with, um, but assumably his wife, that uh, I believe her name was Degum, and she was the goddess of the earth, the right mother nature. And I don't know if it's his daughter or just a different goddess, Husos, goddess of the dawn. Um, uh, she survived as Easter or Yostre, right? Um, a couple other different, at least in the Germanic pantheon. And I'd be curious to see where she um, survived in the other pantheons. But, point being, she's one that puzzles me. I don't know why you need a goddess of the dawn. But, uh, yeah, so I'll probably try to figure that out in a different podcast. But in this podcast, I'm going to be concerned with Deus Pater. Uh, anyway, so there were also the divine twins or horse twins. Twin stories are all throughout Indo-European cultures, all over the place. But these twins are associated with the horse, okay? That's important because these were people that possibly, right? These are some possibly some of the first people that ever domesticated the horse. So they have gods of horses. Horses are also generally associated with something, at least in Germanic culture, it was associated with you know, the the link between the wild and civilization. Uh, which is why horses were, like, the horse motif was above doorways, right? Or above houses, because it symbolized the marriage between wild and civilization. And maybe that's why the, the horse twins or the divine twins were twins, right? To symbolize that duality. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe I'll get into that in a different episode. Anyway, so, uh, then there's the storm god, Perkunos. Some people apparently don't think that he is necessarily linguistically represented by all Indo-European languages. But if he's not linguistically represented, he is represented in the religions of the different Indo-European cultures. Okay, so like Indra in Hinduism, Thor obviously his name survived perfectly almost as Parkunas in the Lithuanian religion and uh he kind of got merged with Deus Pater in the forms of Zeus and Jupiter okay so remember storm gods so this is a storm god there was also a pastoral deity probably called Pahusan now I'm not sure if that's linguistically supported everywhere however these people were pastoralists right they herded cattle horses sheep and since religion tends to be about interacting with the world and your society it would be 
I don't think it'd be presumptuous to assume that they had a pastoral God. It's up to you. Maybe you think it would be presumptuous. So, yeah, go for it. Um, there's also evidence that there could have been a water or sea god. Remember, these people probably would have interacted with the Caspian Sea. So, Hotam or Hosam, Hotam Nepot or Napat. Um, there's some evidence for him, but I don't know much about it. And I don't know if he was a minor or a major god. Some people think that there was a goddess of the rivers, Danu. But uh, I don't know about that one either. I don't know if it's necessarily very well supported. Um, there was a god of the moon, Mechnot. And a goddess of the sun, Sehul. And there's some interaction between the sun and uh, Deuspater. So sometimes, I think Sehul drove the sun, but the sun itself might have been represented as the eye of Deus Father, as the eye of the Sky Father. Okay, so that's important. So I'm going to talk about Deus Father today, because I've been wrestling with why he existed in the Pantheon. So, here's the deal. Deus Father, God of the Daylight Skies, okay? But not associated with storms. Maybe associated with rain. Maybe. Maybe associated with the sun. Which gives life. Right? As, as I said, the eye of Deuspater. Which you can look me up on that. I'm not necessarily sure if that's true. But it is a theory, I believe. And I heard it somewhere. So I know I read it. That it is that the sun was sometimes associated with the eye of the Sky Father. So look that up if you want to check it. The point being, so maybe associated with rain, maybe associated with fertility, right? As far as the sun goes. And that's important. Kind of. So it's important because he survives in weird ways in other religions. Like, he survived as two in Germanic religion. Um, Odin kind of replaced him, or Woden. Uh, two is a minor war god, right? Like, he's a war god, but he's not the supreme father of the sky. Um, he, Deuspater survived pretty well in the Baltic religion as Dievas, but it's interesting because Dievas, whilst he was the king of the gods, he didn't interact very directly with human beings. Which is so strange, right? Because if you have a king of the gods, why isn't the king of the gods interacting directly with people? Maybe it's because the sky doesn't interact very directly with people. Because if they had a storm god, then they differentiated the clouds, right? Thunder, rain, lightning from the sky. Because anybody with depth perception can see that the sky... And the clouds are separated, right? And I assume that our ancestors had depth perception because, you know, that evolved a while ago. So, point being, that's interesting, right? He's a sky god, but not a storm god at first. 
and if he doesn't interact directly, right, because the sky doesn't interact directly with people, then, I mean, maybe in the form of the sun, but the sun's constant every day, right, unless there's an eclipse, which, ooh, that might have been scary for them. Um, in the form of rain, maybe, but rain is also associated with Perkinos, right? So, why is he the supreme god? Why is a god that doesn't interact directly with you the one that you believe is the highest being. It's because this guy's everywhere. Okay? Now, I've been thinking about this because modern pastoralists on the Eurasian steppe, like the Mongols and the Cossacks, they have, I don't know about the Cossacks, but, well, yeah, assumably, because Turco-Mongolic religion... So Turco-Mongolic religion, uh, also known as Tengrinism, or Tengriism, Tengri is the god of the sky. That's pretty important. It's monotheistic now, uh, but it might not have been. Their Turco-Mongolic religion, I mean, might not have always been monotheistic, but it's monotheistic now. And that's important because the god that survived to be the supreme being is Tengri, the god of the sky. Why? What's so important about the sky? Okay, so let's say you're a pastoralist, right? Or a shepherd, I guess. A cowboy, if you like. Because that's, uh, you know, that's where the cowboys came from. They're pastoralists. So let's say you're a cowboy. And, well, nah, forget that. You're not a cowboy because there was landowners back then. Indo-Europeans were nomads. The proto-Indo-Europeans were nomads. Okay. Your livelihood depends on cattle, horses, and sheep. They need to graze. Because if they don't graze, they don't provide meat, and then your kids starve. It's pretty important. Okay. You couldn't stay in one place, because... If you stay in one place with sheep and cattle and horses, they'll eat everything. And then they starve. And then your kids starve. So you got to keep moving. Right? Which is what modern pastoralists in Mongolia and Kazakhstan do. They're still nomadic. I think they move like four times a year. Which is actually not as much as they used to. But that's the thing, right? Is that if you're relying on herds then you have to keep moving, okay? And the steps were, the, were a great place to keep moving because there's, I mean, there's trees, but it's generally flat, right? There's not a lot of impassable mountains. There's Altai Mountains, but, like, they got over those. And it's just vast. It's grassland, right, as far as the eye can see. So the biggest thing out there is the sky. You're always under the sky, no matter, you're moving, everywhere right river to river assumably uh through grasslands and you're always under the sky no matter what and it's very very evident because you can see everything you're not in a dense forest right where the trees blot out the sun you're in grass you're the tallest thing especially if you're riding a horse so you can see everywhere and 
everywhere you look, there's the sky. That's why Diuspathar was the king of the gods. Maybe not the king, but the supreme god, right? This kingship probably wasn't invented till later. Point being, supreme god, god of the sky. Because the sky is evident as the largest thing in that world, right? If you're if you're looking at the sky all day, it's pretty apparent that's the biggest thing in the world. Um anyway. But why is it so important? Why is it so important that you know, because yeah, sure, you see it every day, you see it no matter where you go, you have a pretty, you know, great understanding of the sky, but why is it so important? Because it doesn't really interact with you that much. Because if you need to go, if you need to keep moving to survive, and, all right, so you need to be free. You need to be free to move. What symbolizes freedom? Being able to go anywhere under the sky, right? That's the only limit. If you're on the Eurasian steps, the only limit is, right, the sky. It's up. You can go anywhere else. So the sky symbolizes freedom because you can move, you can keep your flocks fed, you can keep your kids fed. If you're under the sky, if you're moving under the sky. So everyone under the sky is fair game, symbolizes freedom. That's why Diusvater, sky father, right? Giver of life, was the supreme being because he symbolized freedom. Now, Dr. Alan Boris, who I was privileged enough to study under in person, um, has said that people elevate to the sacred that which is most important in their lives. So if the most important thing is the freedom to move your flocks so that your flocks can feed your kids, that's the most important thing. And you can move your flocks anywhere under the sky. The sky becomes the embodiment of freedom itself. The embodiment of everything you need to survive. Right? The most important survival... Uh, what would you call this? The most important aspect of your survival. Freedom. Freedom to move. So they elevated that freedom. They elevated that symbolism. What they could see is the symbolism of the freedom to move anywhere they wanted. They elevated that to the supreme being in their culture. The Sky Father. And it's such an important concept. Concept of the day, right? Of the sky. That it permeated so deep into our language that we use the word day every every day without even thinking about it when originally it didn't even mean you know the time when the sun is up the time when we're our earth is facing the sun it meant the sky that's where our word day comes from that's where the the spanish word dios comes from it doesn't mean deity it means deity now but it used to mean sky how crazy important is that that the concept of the sky of 
the freedom to move anywhere under the sky was so important that it permeated our everyday language so that all Indo-Europeans have a word that came from it. Like, that's amazing. That's absolutely mind-boggling. So, that is my thought about Duspather and the origin of our word day, origin of deity, all that fun stuff. That's my thought about that. Um, obviously this is me conceptualizing it, right? I'm not, uh, well, not really a professional, I'm not amateur. I do this for fun. So take it with whatever grains of salt you want. Think about it, mull it over. Maybe you think something different. Maybe you think there's a different reason this guy is so important. Uh, but yeah, if you can, if you want to... I don't know, start a discussion or whatever. Let me know. Um, if you don't, then don't. I don't care. You don't have to be nice. You can say whatever you want. Right? Free country, freedom of speech. That's pretty important. So, yeah. Leave a comment if you want. Leave a review if you want. And, yeah. This is Gideon Culver. And you've been listening to some thoughts on the Proto-Indo-European religion. Thanks for listening.